Hello, I'm Michelle Radom and I'm talking today about some of the most common issues I see cropping up on privilege and covering some of the recent case law too. What's the most common issue you see when deciding whether a document is privileged? Well, one thing that crops up time and again is where the focus always seems to be on just legal advice privilege rather than litigation privilege as well. Legal advice privilege has got a well-known limitation uh, and that's the narrow definition of who a client is. This has been criticised a lot of times, uh, most recently twice by the Court of Appeal, but it still stands. The Three Rivers No. 5 decision is still binding, um, despite the fact that courts have pointed out that in Three Rivers it was actually the client itself which chose to set up a group specifically to deal with a particular legal issue. Uh, And also the fact that we are out of step with a lot of other jurisdictions, including common law countries, Uh, and the fact that it puts large companies at a disadvantage when taking legal advice. Nevertheless, it will take a Supreme Court decision to overturn the position, and there's nothing on the horizon at the moment. I think it will eventually go, but it hasn't gone yet. Um, But as I say, litigation privilege is a bit disregarded. People obviously um, know that the test is whether litigation is in reasonable contemplation. But they often say to me, oh, we're we're definitely not at that stage yet. Litigation isn't in reasonable contemplation. Uh, It is true that it's not enough to just have the mere chance of future litigation at some point. But if you take, for example, the position where you know you've done something wrong, you know that you've caused somebody a loss or damage, it's probably not going to be litigation privilege if you haven't heard anything at all from the other side yet about a claim. But even in those circumstances, it could be that given the context, uh, litigation could be said to be in reasonable contemplation. So, for example... If you know that the person or company that suffered the loss is itching for a chance to sue you, um, then that may be enough in the circumstances to say that litigation is in reasonable contemplation. Basically, the test is looked at objectively. Is this going to end up in a claim being started in the courts? So to take the case of Westminster and Doorknock back in 2008, that was a, a situation where a huge claim came in. The defendant had very serious concerns about the claimant's figures, so they appointed their own loss adjusters. And the Court of Appeals said that there was a good chance, even though the loss adjusters hadn't actually come back with anything yet, that this whole situation was bound to end up in a complicated claim and that there was an argument that litigation was in reasonable contemplation just as soon as the loss adjusters were appointed. And definitely once they did come back with lower figures, at that point litigation definitely was in contemplation, even though at that point they hadn't actually gone back to the other side with anything yet. And similarly in in AXA and Segoras, again, they appointed investigators and litigation was said to be um, in reasonable prospect because the chances were those investigators were going to produce a report which would show that the defend, that the party did have a defence. Obviously, that was only really with the benefit of hindsight, but the key point was that the party was never going to just write a cheque for the other side when the claim came in. So it doesn't matter if it's a completely rubbish or a try-on claim. Uh, in fact, you could say that the more unreasonable uh, a claim, it's more likely that it's going to end up looked objectively in courts because the claimant isn't going just to to pay, they're going to pursue it to the end. So it can be a case that litigation privilege is in contemplation, even though you haven't actually communicated anything yet back to the other side. 
So the other side may not know yet that litigation is in reasonable contemplation? Yes, I mean, the cases don't ever really discuss this point, but it does seem that because it's an objective test, then litigation can be in reasonable contemplation for one side, but the other side doesn't even know that you've reached that point yet. Um, it doesn't seem to make any difference that one side doesn't know that litigation is in reasonable contemplation. And of course, that is a particular problem when it comes to document preservation. Uh, under the CPR, the test of whether litigation is in contemplation uh, means that you might find that you should be preserving documents even before you know, because it's, as I say, it's an objective, not a subjective test. Um, things are slightly different under the disclosure pilot scheme, because the pilot scheme talks about when a party knows that it may become a party to proceedings that may be commenced. It talks about knowing, not ought to know. So I would definitely read that as a subjective test. And so no duty to preserve until you actually have that knowledge. So is it the case that once you cross a point in time, everything is covered by litigation privilege? Well, the traditional test is dominant purpose of obtaining information or advice in connection with litigation or for conducting or aiding the conduct of litigation. The House of Laws in three rivers number six said that connection with legal advice has been cut for litigation privilege, so pretty much everything in some way is connected with the litigation. However, there's been a bit of rowing back from that position in the last few years, most notably in 2018 with the Court of Appeal decision in WH Holding and E20 Stadium. In that case, they said that not all documents brought into existence for the purpose of actual or contemplated litigation are covered by litigation. In that case, it was decided that a purely commercial internal discussion relating to settling ongoing litigation was not privileged, even though settling litigation is something which falls within the definition of conducting litig litigation, and that was confirmed in the SFO ENRC case. And then most recently, we've had the HML and Canary Riverside case saying that really litigation privileges for communications between a lawyer and a client and there are only limited circumstances where communications with third parties are going to be privileged only if you're really talking to the third parties in order to obtain information or advice in connection with litigation but not for conducting the litigation. So this is a concern, for example, where you've got a situation where purely commercial discussions are going on within a client organisation about how, to, how much to offer to settle a case. That won't be protected yet by without prejudice privilege as it's too early. You haven't had your opening shot yet. And I'll come back to what opening shot means later. So instead of having a discussion about let's offer X amount to the other side, it might be best to try and bring in details of your lawyer's advice to try and tie the two things together as much as possible. So, for example, say something like, let's offer X amount based on our solicitor's advice, which said Y, or better still, of course, don't put anything in writing and just have those discussions in person. That said, I'd argue anyway that those kind of discussions wouldn't be disclosable because they're not relevant. You aren't discussing what went wrong or in the first place or why something went wrong. Your own assessment of how good your case is is pretty much irrelevant. You might think you've got a watertight case, you might think you've got a hopeless case, but you could actually be wrong. Uh, it's for the court to decide, not for you to decide that. So it isn't something that you would need to disclose. Uh, and that is another point, actually. When people focus on privilege, they sometimes get lose sight of relevance altogether and whether something is disclosable anyway in the first place. Uh, and a recent example of that was in the case of Rifus and Bank, 
where the defendant's solicitors never actually took the point of relevance and only raised legal advice privilege. But the Court of Appeal said that documents wouldn't have been disclosable anyway. And what did you mean when you talked about a dominant purpose for litigation? Yeah, just watch out for dual purposes. So something has gone wrong, ask yourself when you're investigating, for example, questioning relevant employees, are you trying to work out what happens so that you can improve procedures in future? In other words, a sort of internal audit. Or are you really gathering evidence to fight a claim you're never going to pay? It's fine if you've got both reasons, as long as you can still say that the dominant purpose is to litigate. It's not normally a problem, obviously, with large claims because they are more likely to be litigated. But if you can make a temporaneous record of your reasons, so much the better. Going back to legal advice privilege, are there any other things to watch out for other than who is the client? Fact gathering is the big problem with legal advice privilege. So material collected by the client or the lawyer from third parties or witnesses. Uh, And as I say, that includes employees of the client organisations as part of a fact gathering exercise will not be privileged. And that's even though you're gathering the facts in order to give legal advice. So if a lawyer is just interviewing employees uh, and those interview notes are not going to be privileged unless you can argue that they somehow betray the nature of the advice you're giving. Uh, But the likelihood is it's going to be too early on for that. Basically, you can't give any advice until you know what's happened. But as between the lawyer and the client, everything will be privileged? Uh, Strictly speaking, no. It, It certainly doesn't work to just stick a lawyer onto an email address list if you're not really using them as a lawyer. Or if you are, but you're also sending it to non-lawyers and the dominant purpose isn't to get legal advice. And it has recently been confirmed that legal advice privilege has got a dominant purpose test, just the same as litigation privilege does. So uh, it was recently confirmed by the Court of Appeal in the JET 2 case where emails were sent to multiple parties that those emails will be looked at separately in relation to each and every recipient of the email. So effectively what you've done is you have sent emails uh, a kind of a bundle of individual emails you sent them all together but they'll be looked at individually so the same email might be privileged because it went to a lawyer and also not privileged because it went to a non-lawyer and attachments are looked at separately as well because obviously they were created or received by the sender at a different time so if the attachment wasn't privileged when you created it, it won't become privileged just because you're, for example, sending it to your lawyer to get advice or for litigation. And the same goes for meetings and records of meetings. The mere presence of a lawyer on the off chance that he or she might give some legal advice if required doesn't make the whole meeting privileged. If the dominant purpose of the meeting is essentially commercial, it will not generally be privileged, although any legal advice sought or given at the meeting will be severable. So again, again, clients should be told that if they want to discuss commercial issues internally, they should be doing that orally. But in reality, once you've got a real lawyer on one side and a real client on the other side discussing non-commercial issues, legal advice privilege is actually pretty wide because of the idea of a continuum of communications. So even if, strictly speaking, an individual email isn't seeking or giving legal advice, it will still be privileged. So, for example, if a client is keeping his or her lawyer up to date on matters, that communication will be privileged, even if legal advice isn't being expressly sought. And a very recent example of this was in the Court of Appeal decision, again, in Wifeisen Bank. There, the solicitors had given a written confirmation to a bank that they had received irrevocable instructions from their client to transfer funds. 
When the funds weren't transferred, the bank sought disclosure of further information relating to those instructions. The Court of Appeal confirmed that when solicitors tell the other side they are instructed by their client to do or say something, that doesn't amount to a waiver of privilege over the instructions themselves. But the argument was run that the solicitors hadn't been acting as solicitors and they'd been doing no more than a bank or any other third party might have done, just making a factual statement as to the basis on which they were holding funds. But the Court of Appeal still held the privilege applied. It said that the confirmation was part of the continuum of communications in a relevant legal context. But there can be problems. You do have to be careful if a lawyer is doing something that really anyone could do. Most recently in the Jet 2 decision, it was said that a communication won't be privileged if the solicitor is stepping outside the usual brief or role of a solicitor. So, for example, in Property uh, Alliance versus RBS, uh, a lawyer prepared minutes of a meeting. It was held to be privileged on the facts, but the judge accepted that that wouldn't always be the case. If a lawyer is just performing a purely administrative task, anyone could have done the same thing. It's just a matter of convenience for a lawyer to take the minutes, then those minutes won't be privileged. The real crux of the issue is, are you using your lawyer as a lawyer in, in a broad sense? So, for example, uh, they gave an example in that case of press cuttings being sent to a client. They generally won't be privileged unless in some way they're giving away the tenor of the legal advice. And remember that where a board receives legal advice and then makes a decision about what to do, that decision will not be privileged, so shouldn't be recorded in writing. What about without prejudice privilege? How easy is it to claim without prejudice privilege? Well, the courts are pretty generous. If you're meeting the other side to reach some kind of solution and you know there's some sort of problem, even if you don't know exactly yet what the problem is, you'll probably be covered. They won't dissect the meeting into what exactly was being said and why. And of course, negotiations always have to start somewhere. So the so-called opening shot is privileged. In one case, Rochester Resources and Lebedev, one side sent a letter to the other side headed potential claims and sent a preliminary draft complaint. Now, you wouldn't think that that sort of communication would fall within the scope of WP privilege, but crucially, they told the other side that they were sending these documents in the hope that that would lead to negotiations, which in fact it didn't. The other side said, well, that's no WP because this isn't really a negotiating document. It's essentially a letter before action. But just by saying they were sending the document to start a settlement discussion was enough to give the document WP status. You do need a dispute, though. So where, for example, you've admitted a debt and you're just asking for time to pay, that won't be WP prejudice privilege. What else is a common issue? Losing privilege. I'd say that the majority of queries I get basically come down to this issue. You have a privileged document, but you want or you need to share it. And is that somehow going to be a loss of privilege? The starting point is that you can share legal advice received. The key issue is whether or not there's been a loss of confidence. But just because you lose privilege against one person doesn't mean you've lost it as against the entire world. But you can get to a critical point where you've shared it with so many people that you have really lost confidence in the document. So it's always best to spell out in full when you send it to someone else that they need to keep it confidential as well. Can you give me some practical examples? So, for example, a subsidiary sharing information with its parent company, that that will still be privileged as against the rest of the world, provided the parent company agrees to keep it privileged and confidential. 
In one case, it was held that there's no waiver of privilege if communications are shown to the party's shareholder, but confidentiality will be lost if the communication is shown to the shareholder's shareholder. So we are talking about a fairly limited circle of confidence. Uh, And just be aware of one other issue that can crop up, and and this came up in the case of BBGP and Babcock in 2010. So in that case, the company A's employee had been seconded to company B, and company B actually had a contractual right to read that employee's emails. A's solicitors sent an email to the employee, and then A and B ended up in litigation. And it was held on the facts that confidentiality wasn't lost in that case just because the solicitors hadn't known that B could read his documents, which is a slightly unusual decision because usually it doesn't really matter whether the party is intending to waive privilege. Um, so I, I think it still is worth bearing in mind that you always need to check if you are sending something to a third party. Does that third party have a contractual or legal obligation to share their communications with anyone else? Uh, for example, an employer or maybe a regulator. Also, if a document is shared with a client and the client makes notes on that document, those notes are not going to be privileged unless, as I said, it gives away or gives a clue to the nature of advice. So more than something which just allows you to speculate or wonder what the advice was said. Which sounds pretty simple, in pra- it, it, it's simple, but in practice, it can be tricky to know if you cross that line. So, for example, uh, the email that says, OMG, this looks bad, sort of comment is, is giving away what the advice is, but not exactly. Um, you could say, though, you're getting a clue, especially if it's said in relation to a particular legal issue. So obviously fact specific, but just something to bear in mind. And I mentioned before that a non-privileged document won't become privileged even if you later use it for a privileged purpose, such as taking legal advice or for litigation. But there is just one strange quirk, and that's the fact that there is authority that where a lawyer gets a copy of a non-privileged document from a third party, the client doesn't have that document, has never had it and never will have it, uh, where they send that copy to the lawyer for use in litigation or for legal advice, that copy will be privileged. Uh, And that's the Court of Appeal decision in the Palermo, which was approved in a later Court of Appeal decision as well. However, where the third party sends the original, it won't be privileged, even if it is going to be used for legal advice or litigation. And that's the Venturis and Mounting case, Uh, which obviously sounds like a very strange distinction. I think basically what it is, is that the Palermo itself is a strange case. Um, and since then, the Court of Appeal tried to narrow it down as much as they can. But none of this has actually gone before the Supreme Court yet. I think when it eventually goes to the Supreme Court, it will be overruled altogether. Also, of course, remember that you can't cherry pick. If you lose confidentiality in the advice, you would have to disclose the whole advice. So finally, what are your top tips? Well, marking privilege doesn't mean it is privileged, but it's still probably worth doing because it certainly helps when you've got paralegals reviewing to isolate the potentially privileged documents quickly. Uh, In fact, always spell out as much as you can. So spell out to the client exactly who the client is, who the key players are likely to be. Spell out in a document or correspondence when you think litigation is first in contemplation. I mean, bear in mind, of course, none of that is going to be binding on a judge, but it just helps build your argument. Redactions, don't go reduction crazy. There's been quite a few cases recently emphasising that confidentiality or sensitive information is not a reason to redact a document. 
If you are redacting, try not to set hairs running. As soon as you blank something out, you're going to make it immediately suspicious to the other side. The potential to raise suspicion is not a reason in itself not to redact, but try not to redact, for example, in the middle of an otherwise relevant passage. And if you really do have to do that, then explain why you've done it. Uh, And finally, always check is there an international angle. Just because something is privileged under English law, if proceedings are taking place elsewhere, local law requirements may require disclosure. It's the law of the forum which governs privilege issues. A recent case tried to argue that that's not actually a hard and fast rule and it probably should be the law of the place where the document came into existence. And the judge said that he saw some force in that, but he didn't go as far as actually holding that it was right. So not something you could rely on. Um, Arbitrators do tend to have more discretion on this issue, though. And also bear in mind that in many jurisdictions in Europe, in-house lawyers are not actually allowed to join the bar or law society. So internal company communications with an in-house lawyer aren't always privileged. Uh, Anything else, do get in touch with me. Maybe your question can make it on to the next podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thank you.